Well, every Sunday at Desert Springs, a pastor stands here in this spot and opens a text from Scripture and preaches from it, and preaches from it as though God were speaking afresh to his people through that spoken word. But why? Why preaching? Yes, that's the theme of our Claris Conference next weekend. I know not all of you will be there, but I want to today to get the ball rolling for us. I'd like to break from our series in the gospel according to Mark this week and next week as Don Carson preaches for us to ask and answer that question, at least to begin to answer that, those kind of questions. Why preaching? What is it? What does it do? What does it mean? What is its significance? And what is its relevance today, if any? Is preaching just some outdated mode of communication? Like that old professor who still lectures and uses a chalkboard because he doesn't know about internet web platforms and such for teaching? Do we do preaching and listen to sermons simply because we've always done it or because we can't think of anything more creative to do? Now, I know it might seem like a self-serving endeavor for a preacher to talk about preaching. Of course, preachers love preaching and believe in preaching. And you don't need me to tell you that. You don't maybe even trust me to defend it. Not many of us would want to tune into a podcast with the president of Ford Motor Company telling us about how great automobiles are and how we should keep driving them. But we, too, we do keep driving cars, don't we? We can't imagine life without them, I'm sure, for almost all of us in this room. Uh, you don't need to entertain why you have a car and why you drive a car. Uh, you just know, you, you know that. And we continue to preach and listen to sermons, but the why is less obvious than why we have cars and why we still drive. Listening to sermons is something we do more than anything else when we're all together as a church. Yet it can be one of the least talked about, least thought about things in the life of a church. So what is preaching? Well, preaching is not just biblical instruction. It's not just moral direction. And preaching is not just powerful motivation. True preaching is God speaking his word afresh to his people through a man. That is, if it's faithful to the Bible, then it represents God and he speaks afresh. Where it's not faithful to the text, God doesn't stand behind it. It's not his voice. But as it's faithful to the text, he speaks afresh. The second Helvetic confession, written by Heinrich Bullinger in 1566, put this quite boldly and clearly and succinctly. It said, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. D.A. Carson put it this way. Ideally, the sermon is more than just a communication of propositions and morals. It is the communication of God from God. 
In the sermon, God mediates himself to us by the same word when once again it is announced by the man of God. When the word of God is truly preached, that old word preaches again and speaks again. And really, it's no old word, is it? Hebrews tells us that the word of God is active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. Today, I'd like to try to prove that to you and illustrate that some more by taking us back to the 6th century B.C., to the book of Ezekiel. And here's how confident I am in the Word of God and its relevance for today. I'm not confident in the preacher. Don't misunderstand. I think I have a complex related to that. But, but I, I am confident in the Word to speak. I'm so confident that we're going to spend the next 40 to 45 minutes looking at four chapters in the strange book of Ezekiel, written 600 years before the coming of Christ, in order to understand what preaching is and how God still uses it. We'll look at chapter 1, and there we'll see the God who speaks. Then we'll look at chapter 2 and 3, shorter chapters, and we'll see how God speaks. And then we'll flip to chapter 37 at least just half of it, to see there what God's spoken word can do. Ezekiel. Ezekiel's a prophet. That means he speaks God's words to the people. He preaches to them what God has told him to say. That's not exactly the same thing as modern-day preaching and preachers, because at times Ezekiel is getting his word from God live and almost on the fly but it's essentially the same in that both prophet and pastor hear from God, get from God, and deliver that word to the people on God's behalf. So 50 times in the book of Ezekiel, we read the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me. And then 45 times in the book, we read God saying to Ezekiel, Say to them, say to the Israelites, say to my people, say to this or that other nation, you say what I tell you to say. Ezekiel 1, let's just start reading the first few verses to get us started. Verse 1 says, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Now we're picking up in the middle of a story. If you know your Bible pretty well, you know this. You know that word exile means these are the days of the exile or the Babylonian captivity. This is actually in the middle of that exile happening. There are two parts of the exile. The first, uh, the Babylonians came in and, and conquered and, and took some or most of the Israelites back to their land in, in captivity. Later on, there'll be another return of the Babylonians and then they'll decimate the temple, not just the city, and they'll take the rest back to Babylon with them. 
They're right in the middle of this as Ezekiel 1 is beginning. That means that dark days are going on and darker days are still ahead. You have to understand that this means that it looks like to Israelites in those days, there's an undoing, a falling apart of the promises of God, the promises of old. Babylonian captivity doesn't just mean that they're away from home or, or homesick or in a foreign culture that takes them getting used to. It's not even that their homes have been destroyed if they've been taken into captivity, or even worse, that their families, family members have been destroyed for some of these. No, it's an upending of the promises, or so it seems. This is the victory of the enemies that God told the Israelites that they would have victory over. It means they're being ripped out of the land that God had promised to them, God had given to them, and for a while where there was peace, and peace all around. Being pulled from the land means they're pulled away from the temple and the place of worship, and away, as they thought, from the very presence of God. You get a picture of this in Psalm 137, written at this time. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, our praise instruments. What's the point? There our captors required of us songs. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do you praise God in Babylon? Does he not see? Does he not know? Does he not care? Will he not help? How long, O Lord? And why? The why they asked, but they shouldn't have. The why is clear to anyone reading the Bible and should have been clear to them back then. The, this Babylonian captivity was owing only to their sin and persistent sin against their God. They had rebelled constantly and persistently. Being conquered and taken into captivity was God's kind chastisement of his covenant people. They wouldn't listen to the prophet preachers that God had sent that had come before Ezekiel, like Isaiah. God had been speaking and pleading and warning and sending and pleading and warning he would continue to do it during the exile and after it as well. One of those during the exile is this priest named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel chapter 1 is his call to speak for God, to be a prophet of God. But as part of that call, God first revealed to him what kind of God he is, what kind of God he would be representing to the people. And he gave them a symbol-loaded vision of the throne room of God. Let's read it now. Chapter 1, verse 4 to 28. It'll take some time to read. It won't be boring, though. It will be confusing, but not boring. Verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. 
They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like, a, like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, and their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living God, the living creatures, was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering his body. And they went. I heard, and when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, like the sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came from above the expanse over their heads a voice. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was like the, the likeness of a throne in appearance, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upwards from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downwards from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of the rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the God who speaks. 
He is gloriously transcendent beyond words. That's what we see in chapter 1. The God who speaks, who is gloriously transcendent beyond words, beyond thoughts, beyond our imaginations. He is infinite in his glory and power. Now, if you've never read this kind of scripture before, it's called apocalyptic scripture. Apocalyptic is a genre, a style of literature that's long since been extinct. But, but back in Ezekiel's day, even into the New Testament day, this was a common way to write religious stuff. Some of it's not even in our Bibles. It's just apocalyptic literature that didn't get put in our Bibles and, and isn't part of the Word of God. But some of it is in our Bibles. And it's confusing, isn't it? It's loaded with symbols. And each symbol communicates something by itself, and the whole of it may be confusing, may not add up. It's like sci-fi poetry. And you're not supposed to draw it. I led my kids and wife in an exercise this week of trying to draw this, and we spent about a half hour doing it. Each one did their own drawing and then explained it to everyone. And, well, I was thinking this, and we had different drawings. Very interesting. It's fun to do as a family. But I got all done with it and said, well, guess what? You're not supposed to draw this. It's impossible. I guarantee you there are some Sandia Labs guys in this room who were reading this with me this morning and, and saying, mm, that's not physically possible. I don't think so. <laughs> I, I can see this in my head. That, that, that will not work out. It is impossible. It's all impossible. It's all bizarre. It starts with a storm, that's simple enough, but then there's brightness in the storm and a great cloud and lightning and fire within that, which should remind us of Mount Sinai, God's coming. And four living creatures emerge from the storm in verse 5, and that's where it gets weird. Each living creature or angel or cherub, so by the way, cherub is not equaling fat, chubby baby with wings. This is a cherub. And they have four faces, verse 10 tells us. And each of their four faces represents something of the highest of God's created order. Man is the highest of all God's creatures on earth. The lion is the highest of the wild kingdom. An ox is the highest of domesticated animals. At least in their day, you might want to quibble and say, I think a horse is. All right, fine. They said ox. An eagle, clearly the highest of the flying birds in most cultures. These angels, then, represent the highest of God's created order. Their four faces do not face all the same way, but in four different directions, like north, east, south, west on a compass. It means that they see all. Nothing's behind them. They're ever vigilant. They have six wings two of which extend straight out, touching the wing of the others. And it makes up a square when all of them are together like this. It makes up a, a square. And they move together as this square in harmony and instantly, but not of their own accord. Did you notice that? Glorious and majestic as they are, verse 12 says, wherever the spirit would go, they would go. The spirit leads. 
And in the middle of the space that forms between these four sides, you see verse 13, there was fire. And out of the fire went lightning. And their, their movements were like flashes of lightning. And then we learned that they're on wheels. Wheels. And there are wheels within each wheel. Each one facing in a different direction than the one that's outside of it, right? So it's something like this, I guess. And you might say, well, well, what about the one in the middle? Then how does that wheel work? It doesn't touch the ground. No, no, no. Sandy Labs guy, forget about it. It's, again, this isn't engineering class. This is, this is apocalyptic literature, and, and somehow both wheels work. Somehow both wheels touch the ground, and they move in different directions. And we know that we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to look at the physical ramifications of this or try to figure out how it works. We're certainly not supposed to think of this, as some websites do, as a UFO written down in primitive ways. No. You see the, the rims? The rims of these wheels were tall and awesome, verse 18 says. And around the rims, the edge of these wheels, there are eyes all over. They're all seeing. They're all knowing. And where the living creatures go, the wheels go. They're connected. And they go where the spirit goes, verse 20 and 21. Where they stop, they all stop. Where the spirit stops, they all stop. Where the spirit goes, they go. Over their heads is an expanse, verse 22. A great expanse. It's the same word used in Genesis 1 and 2 about creation. God had an expanse in the creation. But it's not darkness in the expanse. It's shining like awe-inspiring crystal. When these angels move, their wings are like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a massive army. Can you just picture that? And far above their heads, somewhere off in the expanse, there's a throne, a throne like sapphire. And then there's one sitting not on the throne, but above the throne. I'm not sure what to do about that. Perhaps it's showing, it's even higher than the throne itself. It's exalted all the way to the top. It's above the throne that there was one with a likeness of a human appearance. And he's glowing like metal that's been in the fire. That's the top half. The bottom half is all fire and brightness all around him. And then mixing metaphors, we also read, verse 28, that this one on the throne is like a rainbow, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Someone needs to tell the ESV people that that's called a rainbow. You could save a lot of words there, like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain, rainbow. So is the appearance of the brightness that's all around. Rainbow, does that bring to mind anything? Noah and the flood? Remember that God gave that rainbow as a reminder that he would not completely destroy. God is coming to his people and to the nations around them in judgment. This picture is one primarily of judgment. He's riding a chariot basically of angels and wings and wheels and such. But though he's coming in judgment, there is hope, a rainbow. He will not completely destroy. He's glorious beyond words. See that summary in verse 28? 
Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This is clearly a vision. Did you notice how many times Ezekiel said like? He may have said it more than your teenager says like. But unlike your teenager, this is not useless like. This is very well-placed and important like. God is like this. I, I saw something and it was like that. How do you put this into words? 35 times I counted. He said it was either like or the likeness of or the appearance of or as it were or like the appearance. And then he fell on his face at the sight of all this. When I saw it, it fell on my face. Let's just draw some conclusions about this grand, glorious vision. God is on his throne, even when it looks like he's not or he's absent. He is on his throne. He knows all. He sees all. He is everywhere. He's there in a second. He is on the move. He's moving. His spirit is moving. He's about to act. He's coming to his people. And that's important for Israelites, and it's important for Christians today as well to remember that God is on his throne even when we can't see it, to remember that he is on the move and at work even when it seems like there are just crickets on the other side. God is worshipped, gloriously worshipped. God is being worshipped right now. His worship is not boring. Heaven will not be boring. Just ask Ezekiel. He, he got a peek. It is not boring. He is gloriously transcendent beyond words. And so his worship is also beyond words. And right now, there is a throne room of sorts. And he is in it. And his angels are around him. And their praise is great and glorious. And it is this God who speaks. Do you notice that's how it culminates? When I saw it, verse 28, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. And then dip into chapter 2. He said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. This is the climactic moment in Ezekiel's call. God is speaking. And that is the culmination of everything Ezekiel saw. The vision was merely preparatory for God to speak. Yes, it was important for Ezekiel to be awed with this glorious vision of the throne room of God and God himself but it's important that he know and we know that God is not one to simply gaze upon. He is one who speaks and he must be heard. Our God is a talking God. Secondly, let's think about the way God speaks. He speaks in words through a messenger. Though his glory is beyond words, he speaks in words and through a messenger. That's what chapter 2 and 3 are about. Let's read verses 3 through 8 of chapter 2. God said to him, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. 
They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say, what I say to you. God is the glorious one who speaks in words, and he speaks most often through a messenger. Yes, there are times when God, in his word, records for us that he spoke directly, not through a messenger. At creation, he spoke worlds into existence, not to someone, but just there into existence. He spoke to Adam and Eve directly in the garden. He spoke like that, similarly anyway, to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses, to Joshua and the prophets and even Saul on that road to Damascus in the New Testament. He spoke privately and directly. But on the whole, these direct communications from God are the exception, not the rule. And when he spoke to some people directly and personally, he spoke to them so that they would speak to others. He spoke to them to make them messengers. Noah was a preacher who warned the people. He was a prophet. Abraham was given promises by God. He heard them aloud in his ear, and yet he repeated them to his offspring and their offspring. Moses heard what God said about the law and how to worship him, and he told the people what God said. God spoke directly to prophets so that they would speak his word to the people. In Jesus, yes, we have God's word in the flesh, and hence God has spoken in Jesus, not just through Jesus, but remember that Jesus spoke and told his followers to go and to make disciples and to teach them everything that I have commanded you. So as Jesus taught the disciples, he was making messengers. The rare exceptions prove the rule that God speaks through messengers. And that's why he spoke to Ezekiel, not just to impress Ezekiel, but that he might speak through Ezekiel. It starts with God speaking. This whole thing. This prophetic ministry, this preaching ministry, it starts with God speaking. He initiates. His word comes to us. His word must be heard and received in whole. His word must be ingested and digested, even if it's hard. You see verse 8 in the middle there? It says, open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. He spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And God said to him, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. 
eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. I know this is strange for us, eating a scroll, eating part of a book, that's silly. But obviously it's meant as a very powerful picture. God's words of woe and lamentation, judgment, curses are told to be on a scroll that the prophet must eat. So I opened my mouth, chapter 3, verse 2, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then here's the surprise. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Honey. Words of lament and mourning and woe. Sweet as honey? Is this guy just cruel? Does he not like his own people? No. He's compassionate. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But he's also in tune with God's honor. He's in tune with God's hatred for sin and rebellion. He laments what's to come. But he knows it's right and true. And even the just chastisement from God to his covenant people can be ingested and digested and taste sweet to this prophet. And he must speak it. Eat this scroll, then go speak to the house of Israel. Whatever I tell you to say, that's what you're going to say. You're not going to say things you think of. You're not going to say things that they want you to say. You're going to say what I want you to say. Not what you think they need to hear, but what I say. Not what you think they want to hear, but but what I say. Not what you want to say, but what I say. Again, it starts with God. You see that? It begins not with their questions about God or the dilemma they're in. It doesn't begin with their problems because God is the one to best diagnose their problems. And the same is true today. Here we are in a room, one guy speaking, and if he gets it right, he's speaking on behalf of God to people who listen. Is that just because we don't trust you to have a dialogue or get too out of hand for us to have a conversation about it? No, well, no, actually that is true, but, uh, <laughs> but that's not the reason why. No, 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 we sit and we listen. He speaks to us, me too. We receive his word. We don't go fishing for it. The messenger must be faithful. Look at verse 10 of chapter three. He said to me, son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, you receive in your heart and hear with your ears and go to the exiles, to your people and speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. He must say what God has said. He must not preach himself, his opinion, his impressions. He must not preach motivational anecdotes or cutesy stories or a string of one-liners that have a zinger at the end. He must preach what God says. And he must do this undeterred. He must be undeterred in this. Look back at verse 7. The house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. For they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel 
have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. But, listen to this, I love this, verse 8, Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint have I made your forehead. So fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. In other words, Ezekiel, I've made you as stubborn as them. They're going to be stubborn in their rebellion, and you will be stubborn in your faithfulness and faithfulness to me. Don't be afraid of opposition. Don't even be afraid of their looks. You speak to them. Unaware, maybe not unaware, but uh, unconcerned with the results. Faithfulness is his call. Whether they hear or refuse to hear, you will speak. God will do his work, and he will do it through his word and his word proclaimed. He is on the move. And we see that in verse 12. He's on the move here. The spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Ezekiel exclaims, blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings, the living creatures, as they were touching each other. It was the sound of a great earthquake. And the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. God is on the move now. He has his prophet. He's installed his man. And he will move and he will make known through his word, through his man. You might ask, is God really on the move if no one repents? If no one turns? If no one hears? Why, God, put Ezekiel through all this headache if no one will believe, or maybe most will not believe, or hear, or repent, why? why? Why bother going, Ezekiel? You've already been told. Yeah, it doesn't look good. They're not going to believe you, or hear you, or listen to you. In fact, they're going to mock you and oppose you. You're going to need a real thick forehead to go do this. You can imagine thinking, well, then let's just not do it. But there are a few different reasons why God sends Ezekiel on this mission to these people. Number one, it confirms their stubborn unbelief and rebellion. It testifies that God is there, that he is not silent, that he keeps sending messengers, and they keep rejecting them. Whether they hear or refuse to hear. See that back in chapter 2, verse 5? They will know that a prophet has been among them. Another reason why... God is doing this mission to these people despite their stubbornness. It's that God is once again preaching and pleading and demonstrating his heart, his patience, his kindness. I mean, think about it. All these prophets that have come and been ignored and some even killed. Ezekiel follows them, proving that God is so patient and compassionate, and he truly is extending out mercy. So another reason is that some will believe, even if it's few. Some will believe, they will, they will turn, they will repent. God will win. His promises will be vindicated in the end. There's so much in Ezekiel that's about his judgment, but there's so much in Ezekiel about greater glory than they could have ever imagined, and it came true. The messenger must be undeterred. 
And the messenger must be burdened. He must be burdened. Verse 14, it says, The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord being strong or heavy upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv who were dwelling at the Kabar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. The prophet, the preacher, must be burdened Burdened for God, burdened for God's ways, burdened for God's honor, burdened to represent him, even in lament and mourning and woe. And that lament and mourning and woe can be such a burden for God that it tastes sweet as honey in the taste. That even in God's judgment, Ezekiel can exclaim, blessed be the glory of the Lord for its place, as God is on the move towards his people, towards Jerusalem. The prophet also, though, must be burdened for people, not just burdened for God, not callous to the people. God calls them your people. They are his people. Ezekiel, like every preacher, is a man between two worlds. God's hand was heavy upon him. He was bearing woes and mournings and laments. And though it was sweet, it was also overwhelming. It was grievous and heavy. Well, that's Ezekiel's call. Chapters 1 through 3. We could now go on to many different places later in the book to see the prophet in action, getting God's words, speaking God's words. Let us go to chapter 37 for that. One place we'll go is chapter 37. And here we come to our third point, what God's spoken word can do. What can it do? Raise the dead. He raises the dead. Let's just read the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 37. It says this, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones and he led me around among them and behold there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. Preach to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, as I preached, there was a sound, behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath or the spirit, same Hebrew word, prophesy to the spirit, prophesy son of man and say to the breath or to the spirit, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, O spirit, and breathe on these slain that they may live. 
So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. God goes on to tell Ezekiel what this is all about. Israel as a nation now feels like they are dried up like dead bones in a field. It's hopeless. It's, it is as good as dead. Really, really dead. It looks utterly hopeless. The valley of dry bones looks utterly helpless and hopeless. And it looks to be an exercise in futility to preach to them. To preach to dry bones. But that is actually a perfect opportunity for God's power in his spirit to shine. Here's the spirit on the move. And here he's working and filling and giving life where there is no life at all. Now what was this great resurrection referring to? What did it signify? What event was it foreshadowing? Well, actually, a few one, it, it pointed to the future revival of Israel, a return to their land, a freedom from Babylonian captivity, a restoration with their God into the place God had put them. However, that sort of petered out if you read Nehemiah and some of the prophets in those later days. It wasn't very hopeful. But even here in Ezekiel, we read about a whole new creation that will come someday. And Jesus came bringing that whole new creation. He gave the down payment of the kingdom of God when he came to this earth and died and was raised. A whole new creation has come. He's risen up a whole new people for himself of every man, every, uh, every multitude and every kind, every culture and tongue in this world. Of course, we can't help but read Ezekiel 37 and think of Jesus in his literal bodily resurrection from the dead. And the fact that all in him will one day be raised with him. We are dead in our bodies and one day we will be raised to forever, eternal and glorious life. Christian, think of your own spiritual resurrection from death to life that happened when you came to Christ. Or rather, when he came to you. You were dead. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. We've been raised up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you can see yourself in Ephesians 2, then friend, you can see yourself in Ezekiel 37. Praise him for his life giving ways and that his spirit blows and his spirit does give life and he's still at work today Jesus said in John 3 the wind blows where it wishes the spirit blows where it wishes you hear it sound you don't know where it comes from or where it goes so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit unless one is born of the spirit Jesus said he cannot enter the kingdom of God we enter the kingdom of God on account of the death and resurrection of Christ in our place for our sins. And we enter the kingdom of God by the sovereign power of the Spirit to bring us from death to life. And we enter the kingdom of God through faith, through belief, 
Not earning it or working for it, but trusting it and receiving it. And God brings all that to bear in human hearts through his word and through messengers. He still speaks and he still raises the dead. He uses prophet-like preacher pastors. Timothy was one of those. Paul wrote to Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus. 2 Timothy chapter 3, he goes into how pastors are like prophets of old. He says there, chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And why did I stress man of God? Because it doesn't just mean godly man. It means God's man. Seventy-five times in the Old Testament, one of God's prophets is referred to as the man of God. It's a technical term. It's his man. Ezekiel was a man of God. And so was Timothy. And on that basis... Chapter 4, verse 1 of 2 Timothy, Paul said, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, here's the charge, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. God still speaks. So hear the word, receive the word, Don't seek another word, a different word, an easier word. Don't pile up for yourselves teachers according to your own passions and what you want to hear. You will wander off to myths and wander from the truth. If you someday in the future need to look for another church home, make the faithful preaching of the word of God the number one criterion. Pray for your pastors. Pray for individual sermons. Pray for the long haul. Pray that God would keep this pulpit faithful by his grace and for his glory. Avail yourself to the worship with the saints and to the word of God being preached. Come on Sundays eager and expectant for God to speak. Not what you think you need to hear, but what he thinks you need. Fight against grading sermons. I cringe to think about what your lunch tables are like every Sunday. I suspect I know because, well, I'm a human being, number one. Number two, I'm a preacher. And number three, uh, preachers are really good at judging sermons. They're sometimes the worst critics of others' sermons. Beware of grading sermons as if you sit over them. Beware of favorite preachers. Beware of skipping Sundays when it's him 
Beware to listen. Be aware and listen. Be like the Thessalonian church who received the word of God from the apostles. And when they accepted it, they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And Christian, know that you're called to speak God's word too, minister or not. There is something unique to that prophet-like ministry of the word that preachers and pastors have, but we're all called to proclaim the gospel. Romans 10 is applicable for any of us in this room. If we're Christians, we say, how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 says, we are all ambassadors for Christ. That means that God is making his appeal to the world through us. Here's our appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You're not reconciled. You need reconciliation. Christ is the reconciliation through his cross and resurrection. That's what we say to a dying world, to a dead world. Some will reject it. Many will not hear. Whether they hear or refuse to hear, don't be afraid. Don't be concerned with their looks. Speak his words. Be faithful. Be undeterred and yet burdened. Know the God who speaks. He is gloriously transcendent beyond words. Trust the way God most often speaks. He speaks in words through a messenger. And believe what God's spoken word can do. It can do whatever he wants. It can even raise the dead. May we give ourselves to his word, corporately and privately, until we see him face to face. Let's pray for his help. Oh Lord, we do need your help. We thank you for your word. We pray it would do its work, the work you have planned for it to do today. Holy Spirit, only you can work in individuals like no preacher can. Only you can bless truth that might sound jumbled or confused or, or be distracting in some way. Only you can really drive this home so personally and individually that there'd be as many applications in this room as there are people. You have that kind of power, that kind of quickness, and that kind of, kind of personal touch pray you would, Holy Spirit. Touch us to see your word and to love our Savior more, to receive the truth with all eagerness like those Bereans in Acts 17. Yes, to test the word according to the word, but not to test it suspiciously, to receive the truth with all eagerness. We thank you for your word. Amen.